Hello, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I'm going to tell you a story. This one's a little different than some of the others I've told. It's a story about change and understanding what consistently applied treatments are likely to produce as detectable effects in normal responding patients. In other words, what does normal change over time look like? This is an important but not well-explored topic in our profession. A previous podcast, Karate and Neck Pain, What Could Go Wrong, touched upon this idea. It involved how I knew a patient who should have progressed without complications was deviating from a projected course of recovery for reasons other than the musculoskeletal ones that brought her to me. Today's story is called Bug Bite Becomes Pain in the Neck and Why Understanding Normal Change Over Time is critical to success. We will call this patient Lisa. Her name and a few details have been changed for privacy reasons, but not the pertinent content. Lisa is a 45-year-old physician with a problem. Six months prior to me seeing her, she contracted an insect-borne illness. It was an unusual case, the first of its kind in our area, and she underwent appropriate medical treatment. However, as is the case with many such illnesses, after medical care, she was left with inexplicable residual musculoskeletal joint pain in her neck. Neck pain may, of course, originate from a number of causes, given her age, activity history, absence of prior complaints, and the accompanying MRI and lab work, we were at a loss to fully explain her symptoms. She was responsive to load tolerance testing of the cervical spine, meaning that unloading a discrete amount, 8 pounds in her case, alleviated 20% of her symptoms. Most of the time, Unloading can reduce or even eliminate cervical spine pain during testing in chronic cases. A minority will have a small improvement like Lisa. For those who are unfamiliar with load tolerance testing, you can listen to my podcast episode, A Biomarker You Need to Know About, The Load Tolerance Test, for an introduction to the topic. Still, 20% reduction in symptoms is enough of an indication that load-controlled exercise should be helpful during rehabilitation. It is also a good prognostic indicator. Furthermore, she had no referred symptoms, and her active range of motion in rotation improved to within normal limits with cervical spine unloading. Her impairment was only about 15% to begin with, so not much change, assuming this didn't represent baseline normal for her. And we knew that it did not. She reported that it was not, and she had in fact lost some active range of motion, particularly in rotation. Her discomfort and pain was a baseline 5, with occasional, though rare, spikes to 7. Also matching normal chronic symptom expression, her cervical spine isometrics were within normal limits. It is currently popular and trendy to think of pain science and then consider what three months of chronic pain might mean to a musculoskeletally oriented pathoanatomist. However, we must remember that a precipitating medical condition was present first before the development of the cervical spine pain at the C4, 5, and 5, 6 regions. No muscular tenderness was present, or ligamentous, or tenderness. Weight bearing surface pain was present and partially alleviated with unloading during the load tolerance test. This is the empirical evidence that is the basis of the claim that weight-bearing joint surface pain was present. 
In other words, she had an intolerance to a particular kind of compression load. Axial compression. Our normal interpretation of this finding is that an ongoing inflammatory process is also likely present. It may even partially mask the benefit of unloading. Usually, we see this reaction, little to no symptom relief with unloading during the load tolerance test, almost exclusively in acute conditions. We will occasionally see this in chronic conditions during a period of exacerbation. When the exacerbation calms down, so too does the symptom expression. In this patient's case, it was enough to establish a potentially useful course of treatment. So, we embarked upon a mutually agreed to series of treatments that normally, for findings like this, and considering a purely musculoskeletal origin, results in symptom resolution, restoration of patient normal active range of motion, and, to sum up, a recovery rating of greater than 95% in about 6 to 12 weeks, with marked improvements noted at 4 to 6 visits and continued accelerating improvement over subsequent visits. In Lisa's case, this did not happen, at least not right away. We knew going in that this was not a purely musculoskeletal problem as it was precipitated by illness. That's a wild card for which our profession does an overall poor job of accounting for. With uncharted territory ahead, the best we could do was estimate a potentially bumpy road that may or may not lead to an endpoint of satisfactory outcome. In the meanwhile, we would do what we normally do for problems like we suspected were present. Often in the presence of infection, inflammation is a problem in joints with subclinical pathology. The infection and resulting enzymatic activity changes in the subclinical joints yield new or increased pain in a previously asymptomatic or at least minimally symptomatic joint. This has been documented in patients with the flu, for example. The trick is to mitigate loading forces and volume during more symptomatic periods of time when the patient may be flared up, like we would do for patients with rheumatoid flares, and proceed with caution and only advancing the rehab program when objective, measurable criteria for advancement are met. In this way, we can avoid further irritation. In the best possible outcome, we manage to reduce, halt, or reduce inflammatory cascades, remodel locally damaged tissues, and improve neuromotor control such that forces acting across the irritable joint are attenuated and are no longer damaging. They become, instead, soothing and rehabilitative. They stimulate healthy adaptive responses. Despite this attention to detail, and much more than is summarized here, it was clear that Lisa's progress was less than stellar. She made some steps forward and made some steps backwards. Then the steps forward got larger, and the steps backward also became larger. However, at no time did she deteriorate to a point more critical than when I obtained my initial measurements to establish her baseline. It is always frustrating when we have patients whose symptom response is highly variable, and even downright contrary to expectation. Both patient and clinician can become hopelessly frustrated. Then we begin to wonder if we are helping the problem any at all, or are we just wasting time and money and other resources? In some cases, this leads to abandoning rational treatments, changing them without a good rationale in the hope that another approach might help, or even worse, abandoning treatment altogether and just throwing our hands up in defeat, which helps no one. To guard against this, careful quantitative measurements help to determine our position in the landscape of progress. 
but we also need to know what the landscape looks like. What I noticed in Lisa was, at first, subtle, but just enough signal among the noise that my experience told me it was wise to continue. After all, with six months of history acting as her own case control, she was not making progress. In fact, her condition had been worsening. I had at least, for better or worse, interrupted things. At the time, I wasn't as certain as I am now what the subtle signal was, but it proved to be useful across a spectrum of disorders. So, we continued. The span of time between flare-ups increased, and the intensity of flares eventually began to decrease. One day, Lisa came in and reported something new. Her ever-present background symptoms just went away. It happened one day between visits, no pain, no range of motion limits, no apparent disability related to cervical spine issues. It wasn't an aha moment of sudden obvious relief. She just noticed one day that her pain had left her. It did so more stealthily than it had arrived. I re-examined her. The residuals were gone. Her load tolerance test, which had been the most resistant to change in the usual and expected manner, was restored. All her tests were normal. I discharged her from formal treatment with clinic visits, placed her on a long-term follow-up for survey and post-care as needed, and released her to her usual activities. At the time, I told her and her husband that the sudden cessation of symptoms in the manner she experienced after such chronicity was, in my experience, completely unexpected. I told them, I'm not sure that was me. The treatments provided don't have that kind of response. Lisa's husband replied, well, at least we know one thing, he's honest. Six months later, Lisa reported in, no relapse, her recovery remained complete. She was still 100% of her normal self. Time to reflect. It's easy and tempting to step up and proclaim that the patient's improvement was due to the intervention I provided. After all, she was not musculoskeletally improving on her own, even with appropriate medication. She was, in fact, worsening. What we don't want to do is falsely attribute the patient's improvement to only the PT treatment provided. This risks misattribution of cause, and it is a form of confirmation bias. This would be like declaring she had a problem when she came to me for evaluation and treatment. After my treatment, she was better. Therefore, it must have been my treatment. In reality, several things are working in this patient's favor. She was on medication for about four months, and even though I saw her after six months, and she was still symptomatic, and even more so than when symptoms began, one has to wonder what impact the prior medication regimen had on her condition, if any. Also, time went by. Many good things happen, musculoskeletally speaking, with the passage of time. Maybe she simply recovered on her own, irrespective of what I did. Maybe her improvements had nothing to do with any of these things, but instead was related to some other unaccounted-for factor or factors. It is difficult to say, but we do have a few pieces of evidence to inform a hypothesis about what happened to her symptoms and why. First, the load tolerance test alleviated some of this patient's symptoms. In our experience, that's a normal response for certain categories of problems that we can readily identify. Chief among these are intervertebral disc problems and vertebral end plate problems. With regard to the disc, a decreased intradiscal pressure environment is known to aid disc recovery. 
metabolic activity can increase, and repeated compression-decompression loads can speed nutrient exchange in the intradiscal and vertebral and plate cartilage, as well as increase blood flow and exchange locally, as well as removal of metabolic waste products. This might thereby enhance drug delivery and effectiveness in a problematic area. The problem is, of course, we are well outside the expected lifespan of drug activity for this particular medication. The half-life of most pharmacological agents is only about five days, and we began 60 days out, or a factor of 12 times temporally removed from her last dose. It is therefore unlikely that the medication is exerting any effect on her condition. Whatever effect the medication had, it was done. Second, regression to the mean. About that. Recall that prior to me treating her, Lisa's condition was worsening with time, not improving. Spontaneous resolution can occur, but once symptoms begin in cases like this, even with early treatment aimed at preventing it, many cases do go on to develop chronic symptoms of joint aches and pains. When that sets in, in some people, they appear to have symptoms for life. This raises the specter of central sensitization, or at least unaddressed peripheral sensitization. Many physical therapy techniques are appropriate and effective for managing these underlying disorders. In a nutshell, graded activity, greater exposure, and psychologically informed practice can help ameliorate symptoms and remodel local tissues, peripheral nerves, and the central nervous system itself. In our mechanobiological approach, we take the specifics of dosing and monitoring to a quantitative level, one which aids the application of graded activity, exposure, and remodeling. Third, the underlying pattern of symptom change itself suggested we were having a real and measurable impact on Lisa's condition. That much was obvious from the first session of testing. After several years of observing patients with similar problems, a handful of data began to emerge which suggested to me the following. First, the background pain decreases, then pain-free time emerges, but emerges, but is quickly followed by spikes of intense pain and resumption of symptoms of long duration. Then the window of pain reduced and pain-free time at rest increases. This is followed by periods of intense exacerbation just as bad as it was before, but with less duration. And then the window of pain reduced and pain-free time increases. Eventually, and last, the bouts of intense pain began to lessen in intensity and the duration gradually reduces. Finally, the background pain disappears and bouts of pain that do occur become mild and short-lived. This suggests certain underlying mechanisms of pain generation and maintenance are physiologically improved and not so easy to trigger anymore. This is how Lisa's pain changed over time. However, we are still left with the remaining observation of the sudden seeming immediate cessation of pain. This occurred after a period of consistent treatment with methods of physical therapy. How do we account for it? There is no easy explanation, only speculation. A simple version of the explanation is that recovery does not occur in isolation. Many systems are impacted simultaneously during a course of treatment. We attempt to manage as many of these as possible so that we maximize the impact of our intervention. When all of these reach a critical threshold, the combined effect is more potent than any single unimodal treatment. We achieve a healthy state that is in many ways an emergent property. 
This involves pain regulation via peripheral and central nervous system stimuli. Immune function changes in reaction to the pain regulatory mechanisms activation combined with mechanical stimuli. Tissue level changes both in terms of metabolic activity and in terms of tissue integrity changes via remodeling at the chemical level, structural level, and in concert with other local as well as systemic changes. In brief, part of the process is analogous to a phase shift when matter transitions from one state to another. In some instances, the changes are not gradual and cannot be. Change occurs when the critical threshold is reached and the change is all or nothing. This observation and the underlying rationale pieced together from many different sources that exceed the scope of this talk suggests complex interactions are occurring beyond the level which our current rehabilitation science normally considers. A more thorough discussion is required, but that will have to wait for another time. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our story for now, and as always, may you and your patients be well. Thanks for listening.